This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics, and we just got the latest inflation numbers. It is still stressfully high at 7%, though it has eased a bit. We're expecting another big interest rate hike, and our health care system is in crisis. But what is everyone talking about? Uh Uh-huh. And that, of course, is our prime minister singing some queen in the bar of London's Savoy Hotel when he was there for the funeral of the queen. He's getting a huge amount of flack for that, especially from the British press. So what does our panel think? And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome Hugh Siegel, a former Canadian senator, Sherry DeNovo, former Ontario NDP MPP and a recipient of the Order of Canada, and David Peterson, former Ontario Liberal Premier from 1985 to 1990. Welcome, everyone. Good to be here, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi. Hi. Okay, so let us begin with David Peterson. What did you think of the Prime Minister singing in the Savoy Hotel? And and before that, have you ever done anything like that? Absolutely, yes. And I think this is so trivial. I think if anybody lets the British press, which is essentially venal, there's a quality press in Britain, but there's sure a tough press in Britain, let them let that press dictate their life, and the fact that we're so trivial as to as to even frankly talk about it today or worry about it. There's so many serious issues at play, and I say, isn't it fun to have some politicians with a little humanity, a little originality, and this scrutiny? that almost appears to be coming from a bunch of uh, teetotalers is it, it makes public life very hard for everybody, and it's one of the reasons people don't want to go into public life. This was very human, very natural, and I say God bless them. Uh, Hugh, I mean, on the other hand, he was there representing Canada at a somber occasion. A lot of people say he didn't he didn't represent us well. Uh, do you agree with that? No, I don't. Um, I think in every circumstance where he was representing Canada, attending the funeral, attending the lying in state, um, meeting with um, His Majesty the King, meeting with the British Prime Minister, meeting with other. Uh, prime ministers from the Commonwealth. Uh, I think he did an outstanding job, and he was well-prepared. The meetings were focused and constructive. And the notion that, of all people, the British press (laughs) should be uh, advocating for a monastic lifestyle, the British press, Fleet Street, um, when a bunch of Canadians staying in a hotel, there's 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 a piano in the lobby, and they gather around and sing a few songs, I mean, it's just insane, and it speaks to the double standard of the British press, who are the worst. I, I don't give them the credit that, that David does, who are simply the worst on these issues. And uh, I don't think we should, I think we should ignore it. And I, frankly, I would not want a prime minister who sat in his room reading briefing books when he could be, for an hour or so, relaxing with fellow Canadians who are in the same hotel for the same reason. So I, I don't take the criticism as serious, and nor should, nor should anybody else. But let me give you, a, give you a prediction. Somebody in the House of Commons, in high dudgeon, will rise <laughs> and try to get their name on the front page of their local newspaper by making it into a huge issue, and I think they'll be laughed 
right off the stage by everybody, including the folks in their hometown. Sherry DeNovo, are, are you singing from the same hymn book as the guys? Uh, well, somebody who officiates at uh, memorials, funerals, and what is much more likely to be called a celebration of life these days, uh, you know, on a monthly basis probably, um, I, I would be, you know, honestly, I've never seen a reception after that is not joyous, that I've never seen a celebration of life that doesn't include some humor in it about the person's life. Um, I mean, this, this is, yes, I agree with the panelists. Listen, I would much rather have a prime minister who is not, I mean, this is not during the funeral or before the funeral. This was on his time off, sing with his, you know, on his day off, um, than a prime minister who'd be shaking hands with a white supremacist and never disavowed that. And I'm talking about, you know, who, who shook hands with Jeremy McKenzie, um, uh, you know, the, one of the leaders of Diagonal. So come on, um, press, wake up, get your acts together, uh, focus on what's important, and Libby, you said it better than anyone, and that's the healthcare crisis, the fact we can't afford food anymore. I mean, these are the issues that are, and certainly in Britain, their utility bills are the issues that the press should be focusing on, and not, um, you know, and not uh, Justin Trudeau singing a song with other, with the rest of the Canadian delegation on a night off, and quite frankly, a celebratory song. By Queen. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I, I mean, this, this is, this could be seen as being in her honor. So, I mean, honestly, it's ridiculous. Uh, I have to say, I agree with all of that, except the one thing I didn't like is that the prime minister's office, uh, saw fit or thought they had to issue a press release after this saying that it was meant as a tribute. That was really, it's like, come on, folks, you know? Um, I don't know. And and they do stuff like that all the time. <laughs> they were singing well, a song. Remember, remember um, the wonderful um, skit that Her Majesty herself participated in with that wonderful bear and the marmalade sandwich. Paddington and all the bear. Paddington bear. That ended by the bear and Her Majesty doing the introductory beat for Queen, who was about to appear out in the out in the uh, out in out in the, uh, the the open territory outside the palace for the next act in the show. So there was actually some connection, which I think was uh, probably part of what helped encourage that little bit of of relaxation. I don't think we have to sort of try to even to justify this. This was a human moment of a very human guy. He has his strengths, his weaknesses, like all of us. Uh, failed people who are in politics, but by God, let's not so, be so hard on each other about such trivial things. It just drives good people out of politics and trivializes the important things in life. Okay, before I take a couple of calls on this, I just have one more note on the Savoy Hotel, and I say, everybody, brace yourself. Do you remember Bev Oda? And and the $16 orange juice that got her in trouble, I believe, at the Savoy Hotel. Uh, Some enterprising, I don't know uh, if it'll be a reporter or what, is going to find out the cost of the cocktails there. That's the next thing. So I read that he was in the, he and his, and the Canadians were in something called the Corinthian Hotel. So I'm not sure which is accurate. Well, no, this, this bar was in the Savoy. Well, I remind you, I mean, this, these things become a metaphor for spending, and that's what happened to poor Bev, and it was unfortunate, but everybody talked about it. But I remind you, in 1919, a government was elected, the farmers' government in Ontario, over the price of a coal scuttle, which I gather cost $37 in the premier's office in Ontario. So, What's a coal scuttle? <laughs> Uh, uh, well, there you go. You see, you're not a very sort of uh, steeped in history woman, are you? Uh, uh, you keep I mean, is anybody looking at what uh, the conservatives uh, in the delegation are spending on their cocktails? I mean, that would be my question, too, of course. Well, yeah. Okay, but let's, let's before we put this, before we lay this to rest, let's take a couple of calls. People want to talk about it. Uh, Ron and Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, Libby. Go ahead. My call. Um, I couldn't agree more with your panel. 
Um, you know, this is such a trivial thing. I'm not a great fan of Justin Trudeau's policies, but uh, something was lost in this thing, and it was alluded to with the Queen and Paddington Bear that she herself had a great sense of humor. So I can't see that she would have disapproved of this. And as I said, it's the British press that's making a big deal out of this, and that should be the end of it. Okay, thanks, Ron. Let's go to Bob in Richmond Hill. Hi, Bob. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. Um, you're on the air. I know that there is a time and place for celebrations and the way you're acting. But I believe now, you've got to be fair, right? Nothing wrong in having a drink and having a, a few laughs with your colleagues. Now, if it was Doug Ford, what would people be saying? I don't know. Good question. Thanks for that. I don't know. Well, I, I think the gentleman raised an interesting point. Yet, I, I, my experience in politics, you tend to excuse people you like, and you tend not to to be critical of the ones you don't. And and so you'll find fault. Uh, you can give your own team a break where you wouldn't give it to the other person. That's just as kind of common in this business. But uh, I'm glad on this point, at least, everybody... Uh, gives the prime minister a, a bit of a break because it's we've all gone through this stuff and realize how totally trivial it is. Okay, well then let's let's move on and talk about something else. Uh, I don't know if this trivial or not. A, a poll, a Leger poll, came out and uh, it found that uh, Trudeau at this point in time has a small edge on the new conservative leader Pierre Poilievre. Um, as a preferred leader in Canada. I don't know if that's a surprise to this. If there's any surprise, I know uh, that a lot of people are saying, hey, Trudeau, uh, your time is up and you better watch out for this guy. So, Hugh, what is your reaction uh, to that poll? Well, Libby, generally speaking, when a political party is going through a leadership process, so it has no leader. That political party does better in the polls than the existing government. Classically, parties going through a leadership process are not in government, they're in opposition. And that's because everybody in the country who would like something better from the government or disagrees with something that the government's doing can find whatever they want aspirationally in that party that has not yet found a leader. The minute they find a leader, however... Over, let's say, the next six months, there'll be an assessment of the performance, um, the apparent intellectual integrity, the competence, and all the rest of the new conservative leader. And, um, and people will come to their conclusions. And I think that is probably going to produce numbers that are more substantive and important than the one that was just taken by Leger. And I'm not surprised that the government maintains a modest lead uh, on a series of fronts. And we've had this discussion before on this panel. On a series of fronts, whether it's dental care, uh, whether it's um, uh, support for different aspects of folks who live in, in, in low-income circumstances, the government is sending very constructive messages. Their challenge, of course, will be their ability to deliver in a way that actually makes a positive impact. So I think we have to see how some of that gels before we get a sense of where the two major competitors in the House of Commons really sit. David, what's your view of that? Uh, there are a lot of people who are saying uh, Pierre Poilievre will never resonate with, you know, the vast majority of centrist Canadians. Uh, are you comforted by this poll or not? Uh, two points. I, I think uh, I'm surprised. I thought he would have been doing better in the polls because he had so much publicity and the focus of the country was on this guy and the phenomenon and this quite extraordinary leadership campaign he, he read and he, he led and he pulled in an awful lot of people. And number two, lots, lots of people are not that fond of Trudeau at the moment and he carries all the barnacles of the ship of state, of inflation and alienation, and, 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 and there's a, just a myriad of very, very difficult issues in this country. And it's, most people take them out on the government, so it's very easy uh, to, to hope for something else. And I would have thought that Polyev was going to do better. Now, that being said, 
I think polls almost corrupt politics. And I, I'm not saying we should ban them, although I would if, I could, if we could, but you can't. Because what happens is these polls tell you about today's uh, wishes. They don't talk about tomorrow's needs. And they focus the attention on just today and not tomorrow. So I think Hugh's right. You, you've got to take a long-term view of this. This poll is of no uh, consequence. It, there are things in six months or a year when we test these two people going at each other. And by the way, I think it's going to be a very interesting contest. I don't underestimate the, the capacity to communicate that Mr. Polyev has, and he's tough, and he can go for the juggler. But I, I may I tell you this, you underestimate uh, Justin Trudeau if you don't know how tough he is. And you're going to see two young, energetic, capable people going at her, at each other, I think, hammer and tongue. And it's going to be a very interesting contest as we sit on the sidelines and watch. Sherry DeNovo, uh, will the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, get lost in this contest? Well, that remains to be seen, uh, and I, I would concur with my two uh, panelists, uh, friends, that, uh, first of all, uh, you know, there are some jurisdictions that don't allow polls uh, leading up to an election for the very reason uh, that David spoke about, because polls influence as well as reflect, uh, and that's kind of unfair, depending on who the pollster is. Um, I put my trust usually in aggregate polls, not in one-offs. For example, Abacus just came out with a poll that showed only 29% of Canadians, and this is a week out from the leadership uh, coronation of, of uh, Polyev, uh, that only 29% of Canadians feel positively about him. So, I mean, that's that to me has more resonance than the leadership numbers, because quite frankly, Trudeau has been not a favorite leader for quite a while now and still won an election, you know? Um, so, I mean, I, I again, it, it's, it's a snapshot. It's a snapshot uh, on a journey that's still years in the making. So we shall see what happens. I think, generally speaking, there is a move globally to uh, move away from the center to more of the left versus right political voices. And uh, whatever we may think of that, that just seems to globally be the move. So it will really, I think, hinge on what the liberals do, what what Trudeau does. Is he going to veer left, as liberals tend to do, <laughs> and certainly in an election, and, and govern right, unfortunately, for, from my perspective, uh, when they get elected? Um, or will, you know, the liberals move left, uh, or will they try to move more towards uh, Polyev, which I think would be a, a terrible mistake at this point. So I'm, I'm very interested, as, as my fellow panelists said, I'm very interested in this contest. I think it'll be lots of fun to watch question period, at least for the first few. And, uh, yeah, um, uh, I think, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see is, is, is the answer to the polling. Let's wait for another 20, 30 polls. Okay, uh, you know, we've just had the 10 days of mourning. So many people were transfixed by the spectacle. I mean, really, it was a an ongoing spectacle unlike any other. Uh, is, is Are there any uh, trails from it, Hugh Siegel? Are people going to be thinking about the monarchy? I mean, we the prime minister said, no, he doesn't want to reconsider it. We always hear about how difficult it would be. Or uh, is it, you know, was it a 10-day thing and everybody will kind of move on and not think about it? Interestingly enough, I think that the, um, the way in which um, the funeral was dealt with and the days of mourning um, and the massive coverage and, quite frankly, the evidence of hundreds of thousands of Britons, millions, being involved on a daily basis, standing out in the street, lots of Canadians with them to be there for the, for the laying in state and for the passage of the, uh, of the, of the, gun, of the gun carriage. I, mean, I think it all speaks to a deep belief in the value of a measure of tradition and stability and, of course, the value of constitutional monarchy, which means the monarch has no authority whatsoever. It has a very modest, he or she has a very modest certifying role. 
but all the decisions are made by democratically elected politicians in the parliamentary sense. So I think that system has been to some extent legitimized and made more powerful in terms of its appeal by all of this. This will not limit the uh, Republican folks in our country and other Commonwealth countries and those who want to get rid of Her Majesty as, as their head of state and prefer to go, as Barbados did, to a local politician who they make into their president, elected by parliamentarians, not by the voters at large. Um, so that will happen, but I don't think it'll change the fundamental political economics of a constitutional monarchy being an efficient, democratic, parliamentary way of sustaining democracy, civility, balance, and the rule of law. And I'm much happier, frankly, when a police officer or an attorney, a crown attorney, um, or a member of the armed forces is acting on behalf of the crown, as opposed to on behalf of some politician who decides that they are really his emissaries or her emissaries. And I think that's something which all of this last uh, period of time uh, gave us illustrations of in a very constructive way. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that would have been the point, at least partially, of, uh, again, this unprecedented, huge spectacle. David Peterson, do you agree? Well, first of all, you have to agree that nobody on earth does ceremony better than the British. Uh-huh. <laughs> I agree. Number two, she was probably the most recognized person on earth. Billions turned into this ceremony. And in many ways, you can argue about the cost and the extravagance, but you can say brought out the best of us. And she was an extraordinary woman. She stood up to scrutiny for 70 years and rarely put a foot wrong and represented all those things that Hugh talked about eloquently. And she did it with grace and dignity and, and charm. And so, but the next occupant of the, of, uh, is, is going to have a big shoes to fill because it's very much a personal relationship. There are two ways of looking at this. The personal relationship between the average citizen of Britain and the Commonwealth and his or her majesty. And then you look at the institution, and um, I think there's going to be, in sooner rather than later, more people saying, well, we've gone through this wonderful period with this wonderful woman, but is it really what we want? There's lots of people, apart from the stability argument, and it is right. Having a, having a head of state that is not subject to the whims of, 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 of democratic vicissitudes is one point. And the other point is, how do you justify inherited privilege in our egalitarian world? And that's going to be a debate that we will have, not just in Canada, but in the, in, uh, around the world and in Britain itself, I believe. Hmm. Well, I think that debate's been going on for a long time. Frankly, uh, Sherry, do you think that this will spur any kind of Republican efforts? Well, I think I said this before, but uh, Queen was a wonderful person, and she would want uh, everyone to have what she had, which is a guaranteed livable income, affordable oh. housing, and excellent and free health care. So I'll say that right off the top. But more to the point of the celebration, and I, it, is a, it is a celebration to go back to our first discussion of her life. Uh, I think we are humans, and we have a hunger, an absolute hunger for ritual. We have a hunger to celebrate these moments, uh, not only in the monarch's life, a monarch's life, but in everyone's life. I think the, the outpouring of love and the focus on the ceremony itself shows you know, in, in the secular world, how bereft we are of these moments of, yes, call them pomp, you know, but these moments where we really recognize the gift of life and, 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 you know, recognize those that have contributed so much, whatever we may think of the institution of the monarchy. So I think that was at play here. In terms of the focus now on the new king, 
Absolutely. I think there will be more focus on, through him, on the institution of monarchy. I think there'll be a look at their, you know, their uh, history vis-a-vis slavery and colonialism and indigenous and some of the doctrines that undergirded that. I think they'll be looking to him because he's known as an environmentalist. You know, where, what is he going to do? Where is he going to stand? How is he going to make an impact? So the expectations upon him are going to be huge. And uh, if he plays that role well, if he, uh, again, carries it with dignity, uh, I think people will be very happy to live with the monarchy for a while. If he doesn't, I think you're going to hear more and more stirrings of why are we paying for all of this. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, for a moment, as a clergy person, I watched that ceremony and I thought, people hunger for this, don't they? Hmm. But you, you could argue, Sherry, that the Church and, and the monarchy and various other institutions, like lawyers who wear <clears throat> robes and uh, to, to fool the uh, people that aren't part of the same system, use that to, for their own power and take advantage of people's insecurities uh, to have these rituals where the, the, they, uh, that the people sit on the bottom of and the leadership sits on the top of them. So there's, there's an exploitation in all of this of some of the weaknesses in us all. Maybe that's a good thing, but it's worth discussing. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, so uh, it's uh, time to wrap things up. But Hugh, what are you looking at over the coming week? I'm looking for the quality of the debate in the House of Commons and in the Senate on the measures being brought in by the federal government to provide assistance to people living near or beneath the poverty line. I don't think what measures that are being brought in are in any way sufficient. I think we still have close to 10% of our population who live beneath the poverty line. That is, depending on how you count, three to four million Canadians who do not have the ability to pay for rent, food, heat, and clothing in the same month. The federal government knows this. They have all the data that one needs, and they have the ability to do something about it through the tax system, and they keep on evading the proposition by coming up with small programs which are not unhelpful. They just end up not amounting to very much. And I hope there's a, there's a robust debate where the New Democrats maybe some thoughtful conservatives and a whole bunch of senators engage pretty fully on it. Hmm. I'm sure everybody will be looking at the House and the debate there, and we've got to wrap things up. Thanks so much, Hugh Siegel, Sherry DeNovo, and David Peterson. Pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thank you all. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about another big issue facing us, and that is immigration. StatsCan came out with some predictions about the number of people who will immigrate to this country. We need them, and half of them will be immigrant families. We'll talk about that when we come back. Before we go to break, let me give the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Canadians generally differ from many Americans in one important attitude. We know we need immigrants. And according to the latest projection from StatsCan, Our population will increase by 13 million over the next 19 years, and half of those people will be immigrant families. And I dare say, many of the rest of us will be very old. So uh, what does it all mean for the kind of country we have and are going to have? And actually, Is that number, is that projection going to come true? We have huge immigration backlogs. Uh, That system, frankly, doesn't seem to be working that well. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'm now joined by Giddy Mammon, a Toronto immigration lawyer and partner at Mammon, Sandalook and Kingwell, and Dr. Monica Boyd, a professor of sociology at the University of Toronto 
and the former research chair in Immigration, Inequality, and Public Policy from 2001 to 2015. Thank you both for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having us. Okay, let's begin with you, Giddy. So what is our immigration backlog looking like, and and what's the nature of it? Because I gather that over the pandemic, uh, the immigrants were people who were already here. Yeah, we certainly didn't see a lot of travel, but the the, uh, immigration department certainly has increased the number of permanent residents coming to Canada. Uh, for the for the very large bar- bulk of my uh, 35 years in practice, the annual intake was about, uh, let's say, around 250,000 new permanent residents a year. Uh, but in recent years, we're doing 300,000 and 400,000 uh, per year uh, since the current government uh, came into power. Uh, and so that's a significant increase. Uh, of course, you know, you also have to take a look at the people who leave Canada at the same time to see what your net gain or loss is per year. And you, you always have to remember that there's always going to be some Canadians uh, immigrating abroad for all kinds of reasons, for career for career paths, for, you know, when they get married to foreign nationals, sometimes they move abroad. Uh, so that's the situation. From, a, from the point of view of immigration, we're definitely up on permanent residence in the last year or two. Uh-huh. And what about backlogs? Backlogs, uh, you know, obviously during the pandemic, uh, there just wasn't the human resources to uh, punch out a lot of the visas uh, that people are applying for. So a lot of that work is backlogged. That's on top of the uh, what I would describe as unacceptable backlogs before the pandemic. Um, in terms of immigration and other immigration services, for example, uh, immigration hearings, refugee hearings, uh, immigration appeals. There's a lot of backlog in the immigration business, uh, but it's uh, really become a problem since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well, that and so much else. Dr. Boyd, uh, what do you make of this projection by StatsCan? Will, uh, do you think that 13 million will actually happen and, and will that fulfill our needs? The projection is a sound projection, but it's also based on a number of underlying assumptions, which is, uh, will future uh, governments, uh, regardless of what the political stripes are that they're wearing, continue those policies? Um, and uh, policies are, are, are often, particularly in immigration, and I think my colleague would agree with me, are also... Uh, they're often dialed back uh, or they're changed. Uh, they're usually seen as highly responsive to the immediate moment. So we don't have a guarantee that the current standard, which is now 450,000 immigrants a year, is going to persist in the long term. If it does persist, then those uh, Underlying results that are discussed, which is uh, growing diversity in the Canadian population, increased uh, differentiation among uh, uh, cities and and by city size, uh, are possibilities. They're not assured. They're simply, the model is simply a demographic one. It takes nothing, it doesn't take into account uh, a whole variety of issues that have to do with local local immigration settlement policies. Uh, economic policies and the like. Hmm. Uh, Giddy Mammon, do you have a sense of whether this will solve our uh, backlogs or our labor shortage? Well, we have a very different demographic uh, today than ever before. Uh, we are living longer, uh, and our aging population. Uh, requires help. And we, for example, need a lot of healthcare workers, PSWs to look after, uh, you know, people as we, we are able to live longer. There is, a, there is, there's always been a labor shortage, uh, in Canada. And a lot of it is due to immigration policy. Uh, it does not, um, react well, uh, to economic situations because one of the most, um, controversial issues is immigration. Uh, The public either loves immigration because that's how they came to Canada, that's what they attribute their success to, etc., that's who's built the country, but also for a a significant percentage of the population, it also is something that is blamed for a lot of our social ills, crime, welfare, all kinds of things. 
Um, so it is a very um, controversial topic. And uh, so it doesn't really react well to economic consideration. Uh, it, it reacts to political situations. And just like uh, my colleague was just saying, uh, the numbers that are projected assume that the current uh, attitude towards immigration is going in, in the future is the same as the attitude towards immigration by our current liberal government, which I'm not necessarily saying is going to be a permanent thing in the future. Um. Yes. Uh, another question that I have, Dr. Boyd, is uh, given, I guess, the vicissitudes of attitudes to immigration, has the pandemic affected or changed any of that? Because one of the things that, that affects all of us is that labor shortage. Correct. Um, it, it certainly has had an impact, again, in the policy area, uh, which is the recognition that uh, there is a crisis in uh, the supply of healthcare workers, um, enhanced by the fact that under these very intense working conditions, there's been considerable burnout. So there now is discussion uh, and actual implementation of policies to try and expedite the um, uh, use of immigrant labor that is already in the country. Many of them are temporary workers, um, and uh, many of them are actually, and I think my colleague would support me on this, refugee claimants um, who are in waiting, and the, the attempt has been made to give people uh, work permits so that they can go and work in the health sector. Um, there's no, there's no question that if you grow immigration and you are focused in particular on admitting people in, to work in certain sectors of the economy, like the health sector, um, that um, increasing admissions will increase that labor supply. Um, that said, um, there are a whole bunch of issues that you then do need to address which is um, what is you know what are what are the contexts of reception? What is the housing for these workers? What's the economic integration and livelihood of for these workers? What are the language capabilities and language training programs for these workers? Um, so to simply start off with a large number of admissions and then uh, argue that it's it's uh, going to en- it's going to enable us to get healthcare workers, that that enabling is true, but I think it also raises other issues. Okay, well, it seems that uh, certainly municipal and some provincial politicians are really engaged in the housing crisis, and that's one of the things. Uh, immigrant or not, you know, people who are working in Toronto can't necessarily afford to live here, which is, I guess, a, a problem going forward, Giddy. Uh, you're right. They're, they're not just moving out of the cities. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of Canadians moving out of the country. Um, what we're seeing is today, because of the pandemic, people have learned that they don't actually have to um, be working in downtown Toronto to have a good job. They could live out in the country. And many of them, uh, you know, uh, could live out, out of Canada completely. They can Not if they're personal support workers. Right. There's, there's personal support workers obviously can't, but there's a lot of professionals that I've seen over the last year uh, or two who've moved, for example, to the United States, uh, to Florida, to Texas. Um, they're keeping their Canadian employment. They're working uh, from abroad, uh, but they're not physically here in Canada. And because Canadians can travel anywhere, uh, you could basically take a laptop today and go to the country of your, your dreams, sort of some you know, remote island somewhere, uh, and you could make Canadian money and spend it in uh, an economy where that, that money goes very far. So we are seeing people moving away from the cities and even out of the country as a result of the new technology that allows us to work from home and work away from the office, for sure. Yeah, but that's not the kind of immigration we were talking about. Um, we're going to take a break. Let me give the numbers out again. And I'd like to know, you know, most of us uh, 
our families immigrated. So where did your family come from? And what do you think of the prospect that uh, by 2041, half the population will be immigrant families and their children? Uh, we already have a very diverse country. Uh, we'll talk about that. And also, uh, where are those immigrants coming from? 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 740 and we will be You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the latest demographic projections. And this is from StatsCan, and it could have a big impact on our lives uh, if it pans out the same way. And that is that uh, over the next 19 years, another 13 million people will be in Canada, and half of them will be immigrant families. Uh, we're already really diverse. Uh, Giddy, I believe that right now, uh, the two main countries that immigrants come from are India and the Philippines. Am I right? That's right. China would also be one of our major source countries as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, has there been any kind of uh, crackdown there? Certainly, uh, uh, we're not seeing the number of uh, actually Canadians coming home from Hong Kong as I would have expected. No, uh, our, our immigration system doesn't really look at nationality. It looks at uh, either family relationships, for example, if you're being sponsored by a relative, or your uh, work experience and your professional qualifications. So whether you come from China or Poland or whatever, uh, there's really no difference in terms of your, your nationality not having any impact on the ultimate decision. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, those people obviously are hoping for a better life here. For sure. And the ones who are choosing to come to Canada consistently over the last several uh, years are, like like we said, India, uh, the Philippines, and China. Uh, because once a, once a critical uh, mass uh, is created here in Canada, it attracts more people. So if you have a large Chinese population in Canada, uh, it makes sense that you will have a continued interest from the Chinese community come here to reunite with family that are here because there's communities here. There's, uh, you know, there's an abundance of uh, infrastructure for that community. So uh, right now, uh, India, China, and the Philippines are 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 leading um, that uh, that inflow. Well, yeah, and it's also a question of culture, uh, Doctor Boyd. So uh, given that. These are already very large communities here. Uh, do you see a big change in culture coming as a result of this? Well, I think you've got to be very careful in talking about culture. Um, it, um, it's, a, it's a concept into which many meanings can be Board. Um, so I'd like you to reframe that question. I'm not sure what you mean. Well, uh, you know, we have uh, lots of immigrant communities here. They bring their traditions. They bring their food. Uh, and it's one reason I would imagine that other immigrants want to come here because they can hang on to their culture or uh, when they come to Canada, if there's another large community here. No? That's true. Uh, I would uh, tend to argue that it's also, um, it, it's, it's not just the comfort of creating a little India, it's also what your networks are. That if you know somebody who's been through the immigration process, they can serve as sources of information. They can also serve as sources of information about jobs. Uh, and so having large immigrant communities uh, can actually be very helpful to the people who are seeking to immigrate. Uh, they, immigrant communities can also serve as sources of information about integrating into Canada. I would point out, though, that there's a danger in, in terms of making what is perhaps the next leap, which is to say that these communities are bounded by cultures and represent something extremely distinctive from 
uh, the Canadian uh, perspective, whatever that may be. Um, communities are, are, you know, what constitutes, basically these communities are constantly in a state of flux. If for no reason that they have children who are Canadian-born and the children who are Canadian-born go through the Canadian school system, develop um, a different and somewhat deeper understanding of what culture is and are, in fact, fairly um, embraceive of, of the major Canadian institutions. Uh, so I think that that uh, we don't need to be worried about uh, the culture of immigrant communities, um, but we rather need to see them as sources of assistance to other immigrants who may want uh to enter Canada. That said, it's policy that lets immigrants enter Canada or not. And so I think we have to go back to this overall issue of the large admissions that are being anticipated in the future. Hmm. I didn't say that it was a source of worry. Uh, Giddy Mammon, I want to ask about family reunification. I mean, that's obviously not based on the economic considerations. The last time I checked in with that, it was uh, there was a huge backlog and it was uh, kind of a lottery system. Has anything improved or deteriorated there? No, it's the same. It's the same model that has been selected for the last uh, several years. Uh, historically, we allowed in um, a, a much different. We allowed parents to come in a very different way. Now we have a lottery system to throttle the number of parents and grandparents that are coming in, and the reason why is because our policymakers um, believe that uh, older people are not the future of the country. Instead of contributing economically to the country uh, by being uh, gainfully employed and paying taxes, uh, they come here at a time when there's a greater dependence on health care uh, services, uh, and they don't generate uh, income tax dollars. So um, that's now limited, and uh, if you want to sponsor your parents or grandparents, you have to enter the lottery, and you have maybe a one in you know, six or seven chances of being selected in any given year. So the demand for parents and grandparents to come uh, far exceeds the uh, the inventory of visas available for them, um, and that's that's unfortunate. You know, some some people look at it and say, "Well, uh, we don't have to be kind to older people." That's true. We don't necessarily have to, but it's the right of the Canadian citizen that's at stake because Canadian citizens have always had the right to bring their parents and grandparents uh, before a, 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 on a much more liberal uh, policy plane. But uh, today, uh, we've, we've curtailed that. It's really the rights of the Canadian citizens that are being curtailed uh, because they are the ones who are initiating the process through their sponsorship. And because we are a country of immigrants, we want to be reunited with our, our uh, very close relatives here in Canada once we get settled in and we, can, we have the financial resources to bring them in. Uh- don't you have to uh, guarantee uh, income for those people and also covering health care for a while? For sure. So you do have to cover, um, you have to assume financial responsibility. And uh, parents and grandparents, like all immigrants, have to undergo uh, medical examinations and uh, medical clearances. Uh, for the supervisor program, uh, you have to even have uh, insurance. Uh, travel insurance when you come to Canada for an extended period of time, uh, or else uh, you, you're not allowed to come into the super visa. Uh, so there are there are checks and balances to make sure the people who are coming here are not going to be an excessive drain on Canada's health and social services. Is is there any thought you think um, in those restrictions that our our own population is uh, is aging very rapidly? Um. I mean, the fact that we already have a lot of people who are older and will have more. Right. And that, that's, that's, uh, that's going to increase with time. Our, yeah. our technology is such that we're, we're living a lot longer. Every year, we're living a lot longer. And that's a good uh, thing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good thing. But, uh, but really, um, you know, that takes quite a lot of effort. Uh, to take care of older people, and uh, we're, our immigration policy is tone-deaf to this issue. Um, I could bring in PSWs to Canada all day long. There is such a demand for them. 
but we just don't have the uh, the policy to back that up. And it's it's too bad. Even the Living Caregiver Program, which was very successful, has become so expensive, so complicated, that very, very few people are um, initiating that process. <clears throat> Excuse me. And a lot of Canadians are going to the underground economy uh, to find people to work uh, for their for their children and their parents, um, so that they can go to work themselves. Um, this is going to be a continuing problem. And, and as far as I'm concerned, if the government doesn't get real about this problem, uh, we are not only going to have a crisis because I think we already have a crisis. It's going to be a, a real crisis that they won't be able to ignore. Uh, what about the, the the measures announced by the Ford government about uh, giving a quicker path for foreign trained healthcare workers? Is mostly nurses, but but also I guess practical nurses and PSWs. Do you see any uh, relief there or not? Um, well, it's it's a good it's a good policy announcement. Uh, can I see uh, a surge of trade? Absolutely not. Um, you know, if we want to be honest with ourselves, the construction industry and the trades industry uh, in Toronto uh, has an, a tremendous percentage of unlawful workers in that sector. Uh, the jobs pay very well. A lot of times you can get into the industry uh, unskilled. Uh, and it's very, very difficult right now to get any home improvements done. Uh, get uh, workers to build, you know, to make windows, to make, uh, to do roofs, to do all kinds of things that our economy needs. And if you try to hire some of the trades, you're going to wait forever. And so again, the government has always um, prided itself um, on having an immigration policy that brings in, and I quote, the brightest and the bright, the 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 the, the brightest and the best. Um, but that definition is very problematic because we can't all be professors. We can't all be doctors and lawyers and engineers. Uh, every economy requires people at all sectors of the, um, of the uh, economy uh, in terms of our workforce. Um, right now, we don't have healthcare workers. We don't have people who can uh, take care of our children people who can build our houses and cut our lawns and do all kinds of things that we are accustomed to. And that's because I think we have a very weak immigration policy when it comes to that area and that need for Canadians. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I have to uh, cut things off now. We are completely out of time. Thanks so much, Dr. Monica Boyd and Giddy Mammon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.